our sermon uh, tonight, you'll see the title is Self-Deception. Self-Deception. If you want a really good uh, example of what it means to be self-deceived, uh, just watch the first few episodes of any season of American Idol. Uh, you'll see plenty of, pe- of untalented people who are auditioning who actually think they're talented. But how do you think, uh, how, do you, how do people who can't sing actually think that they're good? Well, the answer is they're self-deceived. The loudest voice that they hear is their own. But another place we usually see self-deception is in a parent's view of their children. It's easy for a parent to have a false view of their children. All right, I'm going to make, this is totally a made-up story. Um, and it's about Johnny, the son, and Miss Jones, the mom. Uh, see, Johnny is Miss Jones' pride and joy, her only child. But something's up with old Johnny. Uh, he's been caught stealing lunch money from students' desks. Uh, he's been coming home with expensive items that his mother, Miss Jones, doesn't know where they would come from. Uh, Johnny Jones has been dipping into his mom's purse and stealing money. She's noticing that money's not there that should be. And one day, Johnny uh, gets stuck or caught at school. Uh, he's been caught three times for stealing lunch money from his classmates' desks. Uh, the principal calls, and uh, the mom just can't bring herself to believe that Johnny's a thief, even though he's been coming home with these expensive items, even though money's been missing from her purse, even though she's gotten a phone call that he's stolen three times. She just can't believe it. So what she does is she begins to avoid situations where she's going to be reminded about his dishonesty. She avoids it so much that she moves to a new neighborhood, puts Johnny in a new school. She keeps a real close eye on him, and then she persuades herself that Johnny could never have stolen that lunch money, that he could have never stolen money from her purse, because Johnny is her only reason to live. See, Miss Jones, her husband's died of cancer. Her own upbringing was especially cruel. She has very few friends, and her economic situation is far less than favorable. So she forgets this past evidence, and she makes excuses for Johnny, like, the older I get, the more careless I get. I must have lost my money somehow. Or uh, the school had something, they have a vendetta against Johnny. That's why they called him. He didn't really steal that money. She also goes way out of her way to express her confidence in Johnny to others. She calls him the model of virtue, a very fine young boy. She even nearly assaulted a woman when she began to express and refer to Johnny as someone who's less than perfect. See, Miss Jones is self-deceived. She can't stand the thought that Johnny is a thief, which leads her to hiding the information and the evidence that she has. She hides it from herself. And so she believes a lie that she actually tells herself. See, this is the nature of sin. See, we are just like Ms. Jones. We believe in macro ways and micro ways that we're good, that we're strong, and that we're right. And when we receive evidence that says the contrary, we ignore it, we twist it, we rationalize it, and we do all this so that we can maintain positive views of ourselves. And the result is that we, yes, we Christians, Live a lie, just like Miss Jones. See, non-Christians are self-deceived too. Deep down, if you're a non-Christian, you know that God really does exist. You've got the evidence, it's overwhelming, but you've deceived yourself to believe something otherwise. 
You may never assent to belief in God all because you're motivated to ignore the evidence or skew it to conform to what you want to believe. Why? Because you don't want to submit to someone outside of yourself. So you see, both Christians and non-Christians were self-deceived. We both need the truth, and I think our passage today is really going to help us. Uh, so let's read it. It's one verse. Um, I'm trying to make up for lost time. Uh, several weeks reading dozens of verses. Uh, so we're one today. Uh, the last verse in the whole book, verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The word of the Lord. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize chapters 19, 20, and 21. Those are the last three chapters. Uh, and then I'm going to expound this last verse. So, um, like I mentioned last week, when we get to these last five chapters, starting with chapter 17, uh, you're looking at the state of Israel. You're looking at God's people. There's no foreign oppressor. There's no savior, deliverer, no judge. And the judge cycles, they ended at the end of 16 with Samson. But now the narrator is hoping uh, to, to give us a peek into the darkness of, his, of God's people. See, in chapters 17 and 18, we saw people that mixed the worship of God with paganism, and they came up with something totally different. That's what we did last week. Uh, in 19, 20, 21, uh, we see a narrative that's all interconnected. So I just want to tell you the story of 19, 20, and 21. You start in verse 19 with a Levite and a concubine. Those are the two characters. A concubine, that's not a word we use very often, but a concubine is a woman uh, who has a sexual relationship with a man, but she's not his wife. A concubine does not have the status and rights of a wife, but she's nonetheless bound to the husband. The concubine has to be faithful to the husband as a wife is, but he does not have to be faithful to her. This is not what God wants. <laughs> This is just, this is what's going on to show you just how bad things are. In fact, this isn't just happening among God's people. This is happening among a Levite, a priest, one of God's leaders. So you have a Levite and a concubine. And in verse 2, we get some information on the, on the concubine. Verse 2 says uh, that uh, the concubine went out and she had sex with someone who wasn't the Levite, who wasn't her husband. She was unfaithful to him. So in fear, she runs off uh, to her father's house, a couple days journey away. And the, the Levite's not all that interested that she left. Uh, he really doesn't care about her. So after four months, uh, he wakes up one day and decides to go get her. He knows she's at her father's house, and she goes there and finds the concubine's father to be the host of hosts. But wouldn't you? <laughs> if your daughter was potentially in trouble, wouldn't you want to wine and dine her husband? Well, that's exactly what happens. Days and days on end, Levite and his concubine are at the concubine's uh, dad's house. So they have to travel back home. Remember, it's several days' journey. And so they get, the, uh, presumably, the first night, they come to a town, uh, an Israelite town, a Benjamite town, the town of Gibeah. They're exhausted, and they can't find anywhere to stay, so they just stay in the town square, kind of like sleeping in the park. And while they're sleeping in the park, an old man a sojourner from the hill country of Ephraim, a non-Jew who has found a safe place in the land of Gibeah. He's strolling through the town square, through the park, and he sees the Levite laying there in the town square. He goes up to the Levite and he says, hey, I want you and your concubine to come uh, stay at my house. So they do. 
See, the old man was smelling the danger was in the air that we're about ready to find out about. They go back to his house. They're eating and they're drinking and they hear a knock on the door. The old man goes to the door, opens it up, and he finds a group of people who are referred to in chapter 19, verse 22, as men of the city, worthless fellows. A whole group, a mob of them are standing outside the house. And they've come for the man who was laying down in the town square. They've come to find him because they want to have sex with him. And this alarms the old man. He's trying to provide, he's trying to be a good host. So he comes up with an alternative plan, not to give his guests away, uh, but the old man's going to give his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine to these worthless fellows. The worthless fellows, they turn down his virgin daughter and they just take the concubine. And at dawn, after she's been abused all night long, she comes back to the old man's house. She falls down on his stoop and she lays her hand on the threshold of the door. That's early the next morning. And somehow, uh, the Levite has slept well all night. He comes out and he sees her lying there. And he says, get up, let's be going. But she doesn't answer because she's dead. He puts her on his donkey. He brings her to his home. He cuts her dead body into 12 pieces and he sends it throughout the territory of Israel. And everyone who opens up this bloody package, they respond the same way. They say, this has never happened in all of our history and it will never happen again. So because these packages have been sent, 400,000 soldiers and all the rest of Israel, they gather to hear, how did this happen? What is this? And so the Levite tells him of the night that he stayed in Gibeah with the Benjamites, with his fellow Jews. But when he tells the story of what happened that night, he conveniently leaves out some details, like how he contributed to the situation, how he didn't stop the old man from volunteering her, how he spoke to her so harshly when she lay on the old man's stoop. But nonetheless... His speech rouses these 11 tribes of Israel to battle the 12th tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. That's who lived in Gibeah. They were not fighting a foreign oppressor. They were fighting their cousins. And the Benjaminites, they get word that these 11 tribes are coming after them. So they send out their 26,700 followers. That's about 1 16th of, Israelite, of the Israelite tribe. How many soldiers they had. And these Benjamites, they're pesky little boogers. They wipe out 40,000 Israelite soldiers in the first two battles. So finally, Israel, they've got, to, they've got to get their stuff together. So they put together a strategy, and they're victorious. They wipe out all the tribe of Benjamin, all those 26,100 soldiers. They leave 600. They wipe out all the women and all the animals. There's 600 soldiers, 600 men left. It's pretty dark up to this point. But it gets worse. Because when Israel, when, when they had all gotten their, their 12 packages and they all came around, the 400 soldiers and all the rest of Israel, when they came to hear Levite out and they heard what the Benjaminites had done, they made a vow before they went to battle with the Benjaminites. And they said, we will never give our daughters in marriage to these men. So now there are 600 left and they want to keep their vows but they also have a change of heart. 
Because they realize if they don't give women to these 600 soldiers, that these Benjaminites, they're going to be wiped from the face of the earth. They're going to be extinct. They're going to be exterminated forever. So they want to keep their commitment not to give their daughters to them on one hand. But they also want to have mercy on the Benjaminites by finding 600 women for them. So they scratch their heads and try to come up with a game plan. Well, the first part of their, their plan is they're going to take uh, any virgin that remains in a town of Jabesh Gilead. See, Jabesh Gilead, uh, they received one of those packages, one of those bloody packages, and they didn't do anything with it. They didn't come out to hear, how did this come about? We want to we right this evil. And all the rest of Israel knows that, so they go after Jabesh Gilead for their passivity, and they wipe out all the men in Jabesh Gilead, all the women who weren't virgins, and there's 400 virgin women left. They steal them. Give them to the Benjaminites. But there's 200 left. There's 200 men from Benjamin left who don't have a wife. So the elders in Israel are like, man, what are we going to do? They said, oh, there's this, uh, in Shiloh, there's a, a feast of the Lord that happens every year, and all the virgins, as they come out and they dance before the Lord. This is an act of worship for them. And they said, hey, you know, we, we made this vow, but no one's breaking their vow that they made not to give their daughters away if their daughters are stolen. So they told these 200 Benjamites who don't have women to go to this feast of the Lord and to steal women when they start dancing. And that's exactly what happens. This gets you to the verse 24 of chapter 21. This is the story. And you know they're sitting there, they're patting themselves on the back on one hand uh, because they've had mercy on Benjamin. But on the other hand, they can pat themselves on their back because they kept their vow. So they've had integrity, they kept their word, and they were merciful because they didn't exterminate the Benjaminites. But think about it. This is an assembly of people at the beginning of Judges chapter 20 that gathered to do justice for a single raped, murdered woman, the Levite's concubine. But what they end up doing is they plan and then they promote the murder of a whole town, Jabesh Gilead, and the abduction and rape of the virgin girls in two towns. And the narrator tells us exactly what their problem is and why the problem exists. That's what verse 25 says to us. The problem is, is that they did right, did what was right in their own eyes. Did what was right in our own eyes. Are we really any different? Don't we live according to our own moral compass? Don't we live according to common sense logic in order to make decisions? Well, the answer for the people of Israel and the answer for us is yes. That's, a, that's how everybody makes their decisions. It's based on their own moral compass and on common sense logic. But it's as it's defined by them, by the individual. See, there's something beneath our common sense logic and something beneath our moral compass. And what's beneath it is a desire to either live for yourself or to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. You can either submit to you or to Jesus. So, brother and sister, who is your king? A good friend of mine, uh, he says that the happiest dog in the neighborhood is the one who's trained. I don't do dogs. I hate dogs. But from what I'm told, and from my very distant observation, 
um, I think he's right. When well-trained dogs do what they have been trained to do, they play well with other dogs, they play well with people, they eat well, they sleep well, their life really does go great because at some point they submitted to their owner who loves them. Now, I know this illustration breaks down on so many levels, but I think you get the point. Look back. They did what was right in their own eyes. But you see the reason why the Israelites did that is because they didn't have a king. See, this whole book of Judges, it's transitionary in the biblical narrative. You've got God's people that are rescued um, by God from Egypt. They wander throughout the wilderness. And they enter the promised land at the beginning of Joshua. The book right before the book of Judges. And their job in Joshua was to expel all the foreign people from the land so that they might possess it. They were unsuccessful in Joshua. And God gives them a second chance in Judges. And as we've seen, God's people become nearly assimilated with their foreign oppressors because the pagan ways of their oppressors are so alluring to them. We see the decline of the spiritual state of God's people in the book of Judges because an Othniel is almost the exemplary judge in chapter 3. And then in chapter 16, you've got this buffoon named Samson. But things get even worse from Samson in these last five chapters. You see just how bad off God's people have become. And you wonder, what's God going to do to fix this? Well, verse 25 gives us a hint. They need a king. But if you keep reading the Old Testament, you, you, you know, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, all the rest, there's some godly leaders in there. But on the whole, those leaders aren't any different leaders as a set, as a set of leaders of the judges. So clearly, just the office of the king is not going to be the solution to Israel's problem. They and we need a king who's going to come without being invited. They and we need a king who will choose us and not wait for us to choose him. We need a king who's going to do it all himself because we're not going to contribute anything. We need a king who's going to purge not just, uh, not just the evil in society, but the evil in our own hearts. See, friends, this was Jesus. Jesus came as a king, and he put his stake in the ground, and he claimed the whole earth as rightfully his. He rode around, not with a sword to rule in violence. Rather, he began to subdue the earth through his service. He came to serve, not be served. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is? A ransom is the payment that's due to release a prisoner. See, the Israelites were prisoners who were in bondage to themselves, and so are you. See, we seek to maximize our options, to pursue our own self-satisfaction, and when we do, we will find that we will be empty. But Jesus comes and he subdues us through his service. Ultimately, his service when he died on the cross for you and for me. One of the most powerful stories I've ever heard, I recently heard, of just how dark our hearts are. And it's told by uh, the author Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, he tells a story of a man who's uh, going uh, nearby to a river to swim. 
Uh, when he gets really close to the river, he sees uh, a beautiful woman far off in the distance, up the river, upstream, who's bathing. He doesn't think anybody's watching. And he swims upstream with fury toward her. His heart's beating a million miles a minute, thinking about what he's about ready to do. And he gets within arm's reach of her. She dips underwater. He grabs her. He pulls her head up. And what he finds surprises him. He finds an old woman who's hideous, whose skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she's a leper. This woman grins at him and showing this toothless mask to him. And he cries out, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock of it dawned upon him. It was not the woman who was lecherous, but it was his own heart. See, the woman in Muggeridge's story was right in the man's eyes. The Levite was right in the men of Gibeah's eyes. The Levite's plan to bring justice to his murdered concubine seems right in his eyes. The Israelites' plan to show mercy to the Benjamites, that seemed right in their eyes. And we too, we're prisoners to our own desires for self-satisfaction. So what we need is Jesus to come and subdue us, to be king over us. Because if you live as king over yourself, it's going to leave you weary. Listening to your own voice as the primary guide to your life will leave you exhausted. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus invites the weary and the exhausted to himself. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you come to Jesus. We let him rule over you. If you do, if I do, he's going to make submission to him seem like freedom, for that's exactly what it is. I'll end with a quote from David Brooks. He says, it's the things you chain yourself to that set you free. It's the things you chain yourself to that set you free. Let's pray. Lord, you're so gracious to us. You are a king who comes without being invited. Uh, you are a king uh, who comes and contributes everything to our salvation. Or you're a king who comes in service to subdue us. So Lord, you forgive us. For we have done what was right in our own eyes. And uh, Lord, we need a king in this church, in our hearts, and in this city. We ask you to rule. In Christ's name, amen.